I'm Tim Fleming, and this is Better Outcomes, a podcast about stories and experiences from the underrepresented minority side of medicine and healthcare, featuring both patients and providers with the goal of making medicine more equitable for more people. I met Angelo Lima at an event for a queer health organization we both worked for about a year ago. In the three hours we were together, chatting with Boston's queer community about HIV prevention over loud pop music, we covered a lot of ground. Of course, in between talk of prep and condoms, we got into our personal lives. Boyfriends, ex-boyfriends, friends we had in common. But then something came up that I didn't expect. Angelo shared that for a great portion of his life, he had lived in the United States undocumented. I wanted to ask questions, but there wasn't a ton of downtime to get into it. We did keep in touch, occasionally running into each other at other events, but it wasn't until the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA as it's known, was suddenly on the chopping block that I thought to reach out to him. I had a lot to learn. I wanted to know, specifically, how does someone who isn't legally allowed to be in the United States get a physical? Do they get one at all? What if they have a stroke or fall off a ladder? How do the estimated 12 million undocumented folks living in the U.S. receive health care? Angelo has some incredible insight into how being undocumented and queer impacts how someone accesses health care and explains how a tight-knit, undocumented, and immigrant community can affect how, when, and where one person receives health care. I should note up front that Angelo isn't speaking for all undocumented folks, only himself. I should also note that our recording studio was locked, so we needed to record in a cafeteria, which was pretty quiet right up until lunchtime. Enjoy. <clears throat> okay, we are now. Right. So thank you so much, Angelo. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk today, like you mentioned, um, on undocumented folks and, and specifically their access or lack thereof to health care. And also, we can just make this as casual as it can be. Uh, you and I met last year at an event. Uh, and we just kind of got to talking about how all of this stuff intersects and is not one specific thing and is not one particular issue that faces undocumented folks. There are a whole multitude of things that all kind of crisscross and um, come into play. Yeah. So why don't I'll just kind of start <coughs> off the top. Um, well, actually, before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself? And say hello. I should just <laughs> sure. shut up. <laughs> sure. So um, my name is Angelo Lima. Um, I am a Brazilian immigrant. My parents moved us here in 2002 when I was about almost 14 years old. Um, we came here on a visitor visa and that expired and so I became undocumented um, and I lived undocumented until 2013-ish, 2012, um, at which point my status adjusted and um, I am now no longer undocumented. Um, and let's see, and I worked in healthcare a little bit um, for about three years. Um, I worked in, in uh, HIV, I did some HIV prevention work um, and I think the one thing that I want to say is just that anything I'm saying today is from the perspective of my undocumented experience as well as the experience of my parents, my sibling, my cousins, my close friends, um, the people that I met through the undocumented sort of um, immigrant rights movement um, as well as like people that I worked with. Um, at, at the health clinic that I worked at before. Um, so, you know, a lot of this isn't <laughs> research proven. Um, oftentimes, 
that's one one failure I think I see in the U.S. It's like research is great and data is great and useful, but at the same time, it's like data is only useful for those who can afford to have data. <laughs> like, not all of us <laughs> have access to that, and not all of us have access to to the channels that will will get us the the research and the data that we need to prove our our struggle or experience or whatever. And so, um, you know, take this as you will. Um, but yeah. Um, I'm not speaking for everyone, you know, I'm speaking for what I've seen and what I've noticed and the patterns that I've sort of um, been able to pick up on as I maneuver through life in this country as a U.S., as a, an undocumented person and now as a, someone who's no longer undocumented yeah. but still very much in those communities. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. I think something important to note too, um, and like you said, I'm, I'm also not trying to say that this is research stuff either, but for what the folks that I talk to on a daily basis who are in pre-med programs, what I think they really need are you know, qualitative stories and, and um, experiences and things that are actually going to kind of affect their lives in 10 years when they're hopefully physicians or nurses or PAs or RN or you know any other number of healthcare provider positions, we get assaulted with data like every day. And some of it just totally goes over our heads and it's yeah. really sterile. Um, and I don't think when you are, and you know, I think when you're in a program like this, the vast majority of us can afford it and have been in you know, school programs before that even gave us access to you know, a program like this. So there are definitely students who are pre-meds and who are pre-meds in my specific program who, who also were immigrants or also um, undocumented, but they are the minority on, in yeah. my program. The majority of my program are you know, well off 20-somethings like myself. So we can just start right from the top and kind of take this in a weaving way and, and just sort of chat. Um, but why don't we just kind of start from the beginning of someone who is undocumented. If they were to have a, I'm not even going to say a medical crisis, a medical question, we'll yeah. say that. Or maybe it's a question specific to something that's happening with their body or their mind. What is the process for them to get a doctor's appointment, get some health care? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think something also something else that I want to highlight is that like this isn't a lot of what I'm saying isn't specific to what undocumented folks are doing this is like the life of anyone who you know whether you're any oppressed group within the US whether it's oppressed by race ethnic background or oppressed by class status like or gender identity or um, sexuality whatever um, I think a lot of minority oppressed groups in the U.S. face similar problems here. Like the the medical system wasn't built with any of us in mind, right? Um, and you know, if you look at the history of healthcare, we didn't necessarily have access to it, um, and it wasn't something that was portrayed as a right until very recent recently. And, and that's very much a a stance that I think public health has taken on healthcare, right? But like the the system itself was something that was built differently right like um so sorry so uh, what i like there's no there's no system there's no system and the i think the important thing to note here is that like 
these are like when we talk about undocumented communities they're very tightly knit and like i know we say that about different minority groups in the u.s but like these people are very tightly knit like if one person is sort of discovered there's a fear that like everyone else gets deported right so like we don't we're not like out here like today it's very different when i was growing up um you know when i moved here in 2002 like up until about the first time i openly said i was undocumented or i had lived the undocumented experience i was no longer undocumented so just to give you some perspective okay i had never openly said that in a like larger room i would never i was terrified of saying it because i'm not the only one in my family right so had i said that maybe i would be fine but what could happen to my parents or my brother or my cousins or aunts and uncles right um so we we keep that very quiet um <clears throat> and so there's no um, the information that comes into those communities all is also sort of filtered down and it's like something that's been for like a better word, so researched and proven to be to be secure and safe, right? So like my parents would access doctors who they had been sort of referred to by people they knew who were undocumented, right? So like that's kind of how it went. That's how you got information. Like they weren't going to, um, they weren't calling a number. We didn't have healthcare, so right. they weren't calling the back of a card, you know, trying to figure that out. Um, and were these primary care physicians who had, you know, an office building in a city center or were these emergency rooms or walk-in clinics yeah i think these were neighborhood like i remember specifically the one place that my parents always went was actually this place in worcester um and i forget the name of it but um it was a neighborhood like a community health center um and that's where my parents took us and mind you there are plenty of i grew up in milford massachusetts after I moved to the U.S. and there are plenty of doctors there, right? But like, just to show you, like, they knew that at this place there were people who would understand and wouldn't question, right? So like, it's terrifying to have to repeat when someone says, "What's your social security number?" You say, "I don't know. I don't have one," right? Like, it's it's exhausting to constantly be repeating that information. So you know, they knew that there was a place where they would ask him once, and they would say, "I don't have it," and that would be it, right? Like we can still access healthcare, we can still get what we need. But what I find, what I found specific, particularly interesting was that I remember my mom lived, my mom moved back to Brazil in 2011. My parents self-deported, which is what we, what we say when, what I say when the policies and regulations in the country become so rigid and tight that undocumented people leave on their own because that's what the government wants because it's cheaper it's very expensive to actually deport people because you still have to give them due process right um and so they hope for people to self-deport um so my parents self-deported um in 2011 and my mom i think three months after getting to brazil found out she had breast cancer um we get back to brazil she found out she had breast cancer right and she had been going to her primary care provider here for years and primary care provider kept referring her to other people and she would go to she eventually went but to go from a primary care provider someone she trusted she knew to someone that even that person even though the person she trusted and knew referred her she was terrified right like it was there was something that was stopping i don't think it was conscious i don't think she was thinking to herself like you know 
I'm going to be found out, but it's exhausting, yeah. right? Like to now go to this person and have to deal with all the issues that are going to come from that, not to speak of the financial burdens that this would bring, right? Like going to a specialist is expensive, even if you have health insurance, right. you know? Um, so for her to, as someone who didn't have health insurance, to go to a specialist to look at something, it was just, you know, it, it's not something that could fit in her budget. So and it was something that was scary and, so she didn't do it, right? So she went back to Brazil, found out she had breast cancer, right? Um, so it's, there's no process. Um, oftentimes what I found through working, well, from my experience from the country that I come from, as well as like other South American countries that I know this to be true about, as well as countries um, that people I worked with came from. And when I say I worked with, I mean people that I served as, as a, uh, a direct service provider. Um, these people aren't coming from countries where preventative health is a thing. It doesn't exist. That concept is very first world. Um, so, and if it does exist in these countries, it's something that it's only accessible to folks within a certain income bracket, right? And so people who are here undocumented oftentimes are coming for a better life, which means I think in my mind that they, they are escaping a situation that wasn't particularly great, right? Like, if you're living well in your country, why would you get up and go to another country, right? Um, and so um, these people are getting here. They don't understand that this is a system that exists, like that preventative health is something you do. So you don't go to the, health, to the doctors until there's a, there's a crisis, until there's an emergency. Um, so that coupled with the fear of like, what's going to happen? How much is this going to cost me? Do I have, um, will I be able to pay for this? Um, I think really keeps people from, from accessing healthcare. Plus a lot of people that I grew up with, like my parents just didn't trust Western medicine. Sure. Like it's, sure. they were like, I don't know. No, like it was, you know, it wasn't insane. Like they weren't like the, the crazy people who don't vaccinate their kids. Right. <laughs> like we definitely received vaccinations, but um, I was treated with things that grew in my backyard. Yeah. Interesting that you say you were, you know, there was a, a little bit of a, a suspicion of Western medicine too, because Western medicine to a degree is as rigid as the system that it was built into you know there are obviously some hokey snake oil stuff yeah. out there from all over the world but there's hokey snake oil stuff from New York as well yeah. um, and so if we I think if we had that kind of context better of like look at the medical history that we've come from we've done some wild things that have not made any sense there would be much more of a comfort level with like I don't want to say naturopath stuff because that can really, that gets like really dicey, but like preventive medicine from a sense of like, we can treat ourselves with things that we find in our homes. Um, and obviously in times of crisis, you know, go to an emergency room, but, yeah. but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, so that was, that was um, when you were in the U.S. or when you were in Brazil? Or both. But exactly, like being treated with. Yeah, sort of both definitely okay. yeah my mom actually would so it was cheaper give you some perspective it was cheaper for my mom to import medication from brazil hmm. than to get it here um because she would just buy the generic version sure um and have someone ship it and send it in the shoebox right right um and so my my entire family my extended family as well as my parents still go to this homeopath 
Thick is that the right word? Sorry, yeah. I didn't, um, doctor who treats with like natural things, mm-hmm. which I believe in up to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually do think there are a lot of like you know we we still like to this day I, I drink turmeric because it's good for inflammation, right? But like I don't think that you know a plant's gonna cure your cancer, right? You know, um, so there are extremes. But anyways, my family, my entire family, still sees this doctor and until. While I was while we were here undocumented, my mom would. Um, it was cheaper for my mom to sort of send information of what was going on with us, and for mm-hmm. him to just prescribe things, right? So, like, I remember, I suffered from depression from a really young age. Um, you know, queer, undocumented, just ripped out of this country, brought yeah. to another country that he didn't know. So, you know, depression was. I think the logical thing here, yeah. um, the logical way for my, my body and brain to react, but um, the my mom would, would call the doctor, tell him my symptoms, and he would send some like drip medication that she would put in my water every morning, you know, type of stuff. So, and that happened for quite a few years, you know, like there was a giant, which I'm sure we'll get to, a giant mistrust of also behavioral health, right? Like it's not something we, mm-hmm. you know, um, we talk about we, we you just don't have time for it to be quite honest in a lot of communities specifically the community that I grew up in it was like you don't have time to worry about mental health you got work to do you got a family to, hit, to, to take care of you have to survive um, but anyways that's a whole other tangent but yeah um, I veered off I, I no, no this is this is good I mean we're I, I can see our conversation going in, in two ways right now um, we we discussed, you know, in times of crisis, you might go to an emergency room. Yes. Um, but I also, I want to put a pin in the behavioral health stuff because I think that that's really, really, really critical, and especially yeah. today. Um, but so let's start just with, you know, that there's a mistrust there, obviously, of, uh, you know, Western medicine to a degree that is confounded by financial implications. There's a lot of, I mean, you're, for people who are not from Massachusetts, Milford to Worcester is not a short drive. I mean, that's not down the road. Yeah, so that if, if that was the uh, kind of consistent travel pattern just to experience healthcare, there's obviously, it, it's deep-seated. Um, and it was a project, right? Like, if you think about it, like, we talk about how, how expensive it is to be poor in this country, mm-hmm. right? Um, undocumented people, not all of us, right? Um, and I think you hinted at that a little bit when you talked about the people who have, um, in your classes, who have ex, um, who have experienced, uh, who have lived the undocumented experience and have figured out some access that are now, you know, right. going to medical school and stuff like that. Like, we often talk about these, like, like really incredible dreamers um, that have achieved a lot. Like, most of us are, regular people and we are not like our struggle and our stories aren't highlighted like my parents worked two to three jobs yeah um you know and so for them to drive to worcester that's an entire day off yeah you know and so they don't get benefits you know and so they're taking two both of them are taking a day off because my mom my dad had a driver's license my mom did not and so um my dad had to drive my mom and my brother and i to to um, healthcare, so then we have to coordinate and make sure that f- all four of us can get the appointments in the same day. Wow! Like it's it's that in an and of itself is difficult. Yeah. yeah, you know. So so what's what ends up happening is they're not going to waste 
the day go in there with for one of us or two of us, right? Yeah. Unless it's an emergency. Right. So if it's not an emergency, the the appointment that should have been within three months is now maybe going to be within six months. Sure. Eight months, yeah. right? Because that's the date that we could all go together, right? Um, yeah, so th- there's a whole lot that like goes into this that I really don't think people think about. Yeah, I, I think it's probably very difficult for for healthcare providers to see that whole picture. Totally. And I, I'm an EMT, so I, I see a lot of people at the very beginning of their symptoms, and and very infrequently do I see anybody past that point. And like we've discussed, I I try to stay kind of on top of these things and still that stuff goes way over my head um and i'm like a child of the internet the whole thing so you know when you're let's say that six you know within the six months the appointment's made you're all there you you mentioned you know there's maybe one question about social security is there anything else after that that you know kind of sticks out in your mind of like these doctors or these nurses or these so-and-so would always go through this process with us. And it was just never built for us. It was just never, it, the shoe never fit the way it was supposed to. Yeah, I think there was an expectation of, of like, I don't know exactly how to put this in words. I think the issue here is their cultural barriers, their language barriers. Like both my parents spoke English, but um, limited, right? Yeah. Um, my brother and I didn't understand the system. We spoke better English than my parents, but we're children, right? right? And so what happens is with um, undocumented families, the children are oftentimes sort of leading the family because they understand more than the parents, right? Like they understand the system better than the parents. So that'll give you some idea of like how little our parents understand the system. right? And so like when, I think when people would talk to us nurses and providers and so i also want to be very clear that like, and I'm, I think I'm, I'm definitely going to talk about this a little bit more later, but um. There's an expectation in the healthcare system that is completely, in this healthcare system that is completely broken, that providers and nurses are the ones that aren't doing enough, or not an expectation, but a sort of a, a, I think that's the mindset, right? Like, and even like, and I'm not trying to say that you no, believe that's this exactly, or that you say this, but like, even yeah. when you ask me the question, I think subconsciously 100%. it's like, what do providers do more? Sure, yeah. Right? And it's How like, do you become a better doctor for yeah. undocumented people? Yeah, right. and it's like, actually, you're working within a broken system. Sure. So yes, there are always things we could do better yes. and we can be better at, but I, my, my issue has never been with the providers. My issue has been with the administration. Sure. That is not figuring out a better system, right? Yeah. Like we, there's no innovation in, in healthcare oftentimes when it comes to like changing this, like you see a provider, you, you are one provider seeing 30 patients yeah. in an eight hour day or a 10 hour day 15 minutes after the other, like, you know, 15 minute appointments. Yeah. How the hell are you supposed to know what that person even needs? Like, right. how are you building any rapport with that person? Yeah. In that, Regardless know, of any identity or status. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's a system. It's not like, yeah. I want to be very clear about that. So going back to what I was saying before, there was this expectation from providers who were working within the system. And also this was 2000, between 2002 and 2000 five-ish, 2006-ish, very, very limited. Um, uh, there was very little visibility for undocumented folks. Mm-hmm. I think this is a much newer thing, sure. right? And so 
they might not know that we're undocumented or like the people in the administration who knew that we were undocumented who sort of like led the way for us they didn't ask the the other questions that normally they would ask they just said you don't have a social security number fine so you go in you still see an see a provider but the providers are expecting that we know what to do when they they say something to us right like so this right. is um you know this is what you um this is what you need you need to see a, a nutritionist right that concept might not exist in a lot of countries mm -hmm. where people are eating to survive and not you know eating to not paying attention to the food that they have right, right. like and i'm not saying like i don't want to paint this picture because i also hate that of like developing countries being these like just savage like forests where people are like <laughs> living like tarzan right like yeah. it's not the reality yeah. but there are systems that are not like there are systems that are not um in existence in these other countries yeah. and this is a reality like and maybe you know nutrition is, isn't something that's paid that much attention to um because people just eat yeah you know? yeah that's it you eat to survive and you eat to move on with your day and do what you need to do um so maybe people aren't paying that that much attention to what they're eating um primary care you know like it's not something that exists because yeah. you only go to the doctors when there's an emergency right like, in brazil you will die in the emergency room like you will and this is a sad reality like i do also i love my country i am very proud of a lot that we have done and a lot of our, our systems i blame all of this on colonialism because <laughs> it is mm -hmm. it is what it is um but if you're not part of the elite and you're in an emergency room, you will die in an emergency room. So people don't go to the doctors, yeah. right? So we come here, we also don't know that we can. Anyways, so that goes back to like the systems, like how do you access or set up a doctor's appointment, right? Um, but going back to the, the provider, assuming that like I, I understand what he means by you need to go to a nutritionist or like that may be very vague, like not taking the time to explain to me that like my cholesterol levels are at like at a really right like high or high, low yeah. or whatever exactly like this needs to be addressed just telling me to go to a nutritionist might not click yeah you know it just might not be something that i'm going to prioritize if i don't have health insurance if me seeing a specialist is already expensive enough with health insurance sure you know plus there are certain specialties that are just i mean now we're talking about specialists and that's fine too but it's sometimes just difficult to find one within your area. Totally. You know, and, and we're fortunate enough that we're in, we're outside of Boston. You know, it's, you can't throw a stone without hitting every specialist. Yeah. Um, you know, if you are someone who is undocumented or someone who, you know, your status is, your financial status is just in question or, or much lower than kind of the average around you, and you are on in a border town in in Texas or Arizona or you're in you know the middle of the country you might not even have a primary care physician for totally. 10 or for 15 miles um, and that would be close do you know what I mean and it gets even like availability gets even less if you go into like specific communities like indigenous communities yep like so let's kind of go back to the point of, of emergency rooms because because obviously if you go to an emergency room in the US regardless of status you have to be treated yes. um, and which and is a plus from which a lot of other countries of course let's be clear about that. yeah and I think it's also something that not a lot of people know uh, you know my boyfriend is a natural born citizen white guy and didn't really know that like if 
like, and we live in a, in a very, um, we live in a neighborhood that has a lot of undocumented people, a lot of immigrants um, from all over, but mostly Central America. And he didn't realize that like the neighborhood health center that we have has become a, a pinnacle of the community. It's not just, Absolutely. it's not just their emergency room for when they need it. And um, it, you know, it, it has become a place for them to bring in any document that they don't that they cannot read and say I, I really need help with this I only speak Mandarin I only speak Vietnamese I only speak Portuguese I only speak Spanish none of this material is in my home language and I need to figure it out so um, he didn't realize that you know the entry point for a lot of them is the emergency room and then there's this sudden understanding of like wow this place actually was kind of built for me yeah um, and, but that's not the case for Mass General Hospital or Brigham and Women's. And again, not saying anything bad about Mass General or Brigham and Women's, they're amazing places. But those emergency rooms, though you can be treated there, are still probably pretty frightening. Yeah. But when you have to go, you have to go. Um, you mentioned in one of your responses to the questions that when there are crises like that, the emergency room is sometimes the only place. Um, is that something, I mean, I hope that's not ever anything that you had to deal with or ever, no, you know, you don't want anybody to have to ever visit an emergency room, but. Yeah. No, it, it oftentimes was, and it, I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's the entry point, right? Like, so for a lot of people, if they're lucky enough to be in a neighborhood where there is a health center that understands the community surrounding it and has been built for the community surrounding it, um, they will go through whatever emergency care department that if that uh, neighborhood has one if that neighborhood health center has one they'll go in through the emergency care department and they will hopefully get connected to mm -hmm. other services through there right um, but for folks who aren't so lucky they will just go to the emergency room and get what they need to get done and move on which I think is um, and I I don't know I can't remember if I wrote about this in, in one of the responses or if I've already talked about it I don't think I have but like that's a huge issue like as we as we think about Boston's uh, homeless population or folks experiencing homelessness, they that is a huge burden on our economy as like people going through the emergency right. room because they, they can't afford to pay afterwards. I think it's particularly frightening for undocumented folks because they live in the whole, you sort of have to like almost Lie, like you have to lie to yourself enough to believe that something better will come the next day when you're in the situation that's mm. kind of what happens right and so we're always in the hope that there will be some sort of reform like mm. that is the hope and so everyone that I grew up around like my my sort of immigrant uh, undocumented bubble that I grew up around people pay their taxes they pay their bills because they were terrified that something would come along and they wouldn't qualify for it and yeah. they knew that in order to um get any pathway to citizenship they had to be um up to date on their taxes they had to make sure that their credit was you yeah, know like they're not sponsor, uh, if they're like a burden on the com on the community or right. the economy right hmm. um and so emergency rooms then become a place that like people are now questioning whether or not they should even go to like i, mm. I like i oftentimes remember my wow. i remember my dad cracking his skull because he uh, sorry i have an accent so like be, like he hit his head on cement because he fell and just sitting there and I'm like 
are we gonna go to the emergency room? It's like, no, it'll be fine. Like, this is the mentality that I grew up with. My parents would be like, they're just gonna give us some pain medication and tell us to go home, which oftentimes was the truth. Sure, cracking your skull's a little different. But maybe we should have an x-ray done, you know? Like, it might be a good idea. Um, But no, we're just gonna sit here, take some Advil, and, you know, go on with our day, you know? And this is the mentality for a lot of people. Like, I remember working, I worked at this car wash, with everyone who worked there was undocumented and like (laughs) these guys would come into work like looking like death you know and i'm like are you gonna go to the doctor no because they can't afford to or you know it's just not a priority for them because they have to lose a day of work and that means not having enough money for rent at the end of the month and yeah you know so people just you know, keep waiting and keep putting it off. But emergency rooms tend to be the only time when people go in. Yeah. Screw like yearly exams, right? Like. Yeah. And to a degree, and this is not the experience of everybody, but to a degree, until you're middle-aged, you can probably skip a cup. I mean, listen, I'm not saying anybody listening to this should skip (laughs) any health appointment. Go to your doctor's appointment. Go to your doctor's. But, you know, if you're 23 years old, um, you're 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 pliable. You can bounce back from a lot yeah. of things, and and you don't have as many health concerns as someone who's in their fifties. Um, but my thought is, like you said earlier, these communities are so tightly knit. There's such a trust within the community, specifically of these are the places you can go, these are the physicians you can talk to, that anybody who's not on that list is not being considered. So by the time you're fifty something. And you need to see someone for, you know, anything. Uh, there's not a huge, there's not a, we're doing this in a cafeteria for everyone. <laughs> so there's a couple of sandwiches being eaten that's totally okay. Uh, it's not like at, you know, 50 years old, you suddenly are going to change everything that you've been taught. You know, you, yeah, there is a, a an ingrained, um, idea within you of like here are the places that i can go here's what i can do i till this day you know because of the way i was brought up um till this day i don't like i i have to force myself to go to my doctor's appointments yeah and i mean i i have it pretty goddamn easy like a i worked at a health center yeah and i would skip my doctor's appointments because you know i have other things i had to do and it's like not a priority like oh i'll get to that later like they'd see you walking down the hall they'd be like angelo yeah you're 15 minutes late yeah like (laughs) they i actually had one of Someone joked around with me and they were like, we're going to start charging you for your no-shows because I didn't get charged for them because I worked there. And they're like, this person was joking. They're like, we're going to start charging you for your no-shows because, like, you work here. And, you know, yeah, like, you, you know literally better. just go down yeah. to the, you know, third floor and go see your provider. Like, I was close friends and co-workers with my provider. And I still would skip my doctor's appointment yeah. because it's not, it's not a priority. Like, I think people really underestimate and I think you can like you can say this to be true about any habit any bad habit or good habit any habit like behavior change is extremely hard oh yeah if you haven't deconstructed or at least sort of um dismantled the subconscious reasons as to why the behavior became a thing though came to exist uh, to begin with which most of us aren't doing Mm -hmm. you know like the reality is changing that behavior is going to be 
very difficult. Yeah. You know, and it's going to be a very long process. And yeah. So you're right. Like for folks who are in their 50s, you know. Right. And for for whole communities too, especially really yeah. really kind of isolated ones too, um, with a whole system to go up against and compete against. And compete might not be the right word, but to contend with, yeah. really. Uh, that type of behavior changes is nearly impossible. And, and also, like you said, um, there are other priorities. You know, there, there's like, we're not going to really deconstruct like why we think about the, you know, our healthcare in this country this way when we need to go to work to make rent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so we're on the topic of behavior change. It's, it's a little segue into behavioral health. Obviously, yeah. this is something that is we talk about it a lot more every single day in the US and in other Western countries, but it's a variable um, thing in other places in, in the world. You know, behavioral health doesn't have the same um, definition in, in other places and sometimes doesn't have a definition at all. It's a privilege. Like, the, yeah. the, the be able to stop for long enough to realize that they're like something that you maybe want to address here, right? Yeah. Like in your mental, like in your behavioral, emotional, mental health, whatever. Um, yeah, it's not something, it's something that's oftentimes, I mean, we would spend months here, um, but it is also a, what's the word I'm looking for? A, it, the way that behavior health is, behavioral health is seen in other countries, specifically colonized countries, mm -hmm. is a leftover of colonialism. Like it's, men for example, are never allowed to, like men of color addressing behavioral health issues, like you just won't see it happen, you won't. It's extremely difficult and it's because it's it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be the provider, you're supposed to be the, which is true for, I mean that's I think just male oppression, which is something that, it, Every time I say that word, people get really riled. Like male oppression. Like, yeah, like no. we're nice, beautiful, yeah. like loving, caring little babies, and then yeah. we get morphed into oppressors. It's it is a type of oppression. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's like it's it's white supremacy. It's, yes, it's misogyny. It's sexism. It's homophobia. It's like you know, which all comes down to male oppression, right? Like the way that we are supposed to behave as men and yeah. supposed to be as men and supposed to like act out our masculinity, yeah. right? And how that affects the people that it's being acted out on, right? And so it's an issue, it needs to be addressed. Mental health within undocumented communities. I don't think it's addressed. I don't think, you know, I, I think people are coming from communities that it, not that the US does a wonderful job at this anyways, but we do a much better job than most communities. Um, I don't think, I don't mean to go into like an anti-capitalism rent and this is not what I'm trying to do, but I don't think it's conducive to capitalism for us to address our mental health, right? Like mm -hmm. pharmaceutical industries are affected yeah, totally. by us taking care of our mental health. Like everything's affected by us taking care of our mental yeah. health, right? Like it's, I think if people were taking care of our, their mental health in the U.S., for example, we would have had gun control by now. Like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just—it's not something we're addressing. Um, so if you, I think if you take a second and think about how difficult that is for folks who are um, 
part of the the um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like for folks who are citizens, for folks who are um, who have access. Like if mental health is difficult for them. You can imagine how difficult it would be for any other minority group, um, specifically undocumented folks, right? So it's not something that I think people focus on. So specialists are hard. Emergency rooms can be hard, but are obviously available. Um, something that we, that I, it would be, I would be crazy to not bring up, but also I don't expect you to just be an expert on this either, <laughs> is right now it's February of 2018. We've seen over the last couple of months um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals bill essentially or program essentially become not dismantled but put on pause um, and and there's a huge potential for it to be dismantled yeah. um, do you have any thoughts on that and and like I said I'm not I don't want I don't want to yeah. put something on you that's like no 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 I mean I definitely have thoughts um, I don't want to talk out of place sure because it's not something that I um, that I am an expert at. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, My brother was DACA um, mm -hmm. for a long time. Most of my friends, most of my close friends are DACA. But within the context of healthcare, I think, yes, it allowed people to, to now have access to healthcare, but I think it goes back to behavior change. Like, you know, you're not, like, you're worried about, pardon me, you're worried about going to school um you've been i mean i know for myself i my status didn't change until i was almost 25 um so i had been going to, so it took me to i graduated high school in 2007 and i went to college part-time from 2007 until 2017 when i graduated so it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's um i quit i came back i would go part-time i would take a semester off go full-time i had no my parents had self-deported in 2011 i didn't have support um i also came to terms with my homosexuality and i was married before um i was married for about four years before two and a half years before i got divorced but i met my ex-wife in high school and we were like high school sweethearts and um but when i came to terms when I dealt with my mental health and came to terms with my homosexuality. I came out and then my entire support network was also gone. And so it took me, uh, like I had to take different routes, I guess, right? And so DACA allowed people to have access, but I don't think it necessarily um, made it, behavior change takes a while. So right. I don't think it, you know, people are like swarming into. Yeah doctor's offices yeah um, I do think that now it's something that could, could they could consider um, I also think that DACA is contributing to especially right now contributing to the you know the um, deteriorating mental health yeah. of a lot of people who are yeah. DACA because they were hidden and they were hidden and now they're in, on a grid it's a great thing um i'm sure you know it does give people access in a way like sure. they have social security numbers they can apply for jobs which means yeah. they can have health care some more that. financial stability too yeah as well and so there's um you know that aspect of of that and then you know with something that a lot of undocumented folks don't know which i spent most of my time um 
doing when I was working at the healthcare center was actually getting undocumented people connected to healthcare because they didn't know that they could access healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't know that they had access to um, like limited or uh, like health safety net, which was like the original free gear and stuff like that. Um, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like right now with the the new healthcare bill um, and what's what it's going to look like. Um, but it is something that people had access to and a lot of them don't know. And I think a big mistrust of the system as a whole is that undocumented people think that these systems communicate, right? Like they think yeah. that like you going to a doctor and disclosing that you're undocumented will mean that now the system is communicating with government systems right. telling them that you're right. undocumented. It's on the DMV's yeah. website now. Yeah. Okay. You know, so like they don't understand. Sure. So... Right, and that's also a fair, like, f assumption to make. I, you know, I mean, we live in a world where, like, literally everything's connected. Like, if you say something to your phone, it's on your microwave. Yeah. So, um, okay, that's 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 good to know. You know, we we talked initially about my questions were all about like, you know, what can nurses do better? It was exactly what you said, which is like, you know, how yeah. how do we become a better uh, healthcare community for X people. Yeah, and it's great. It's also really important to have these conversations and you know, it's like I appreciate you prefacing things by saying, you know, like I don't expect you to be the expert the expert or whatever. Like, you know, I am at a position of privilege today where I've lived this experience for a very long time and I was able to get my mind um work on my mental health and get my mindset out of that experience because I have plenty of friends who lived undocumented for a very long time but in their minds I think they're still very much like like it, it's the whole mentality of like a caged bird right like sure you if, can open the door as much as you want it, I'm not going to fly away yeah you know like I and that's how I felt like for a very long time it's just like very like like you're you're a baby you're a toddler and if you're if the things that are reliable um, aren't so reliable or the things that people and things that you expect to be reliable aren't so reliable like you just it really does shape your mind as an yeah. adult right and um, yeah so a lot of people are still stuck I think in an undocumented mindset even though they are no longer undocumented you know um, today I'm in a position of privilege where where I can talk about these things and it doesn't necessarily take a toll on my mental health but it is exhausting I think for a lot of people trans people queer people who are like constantly having to be the ones right. to do this work and have these conversations to sort of like get the information across or get visibility across to other people and yet it's still extremely important that we do this yeah and we recognize our position of privilege and our access and and you know go home and have therapy if that's what you need but also don't don't allow this to stop you from yeah um, from continuing to advocate because, you know, my people are still here and they're yeah. still undocumented. <laughs> yeah, and it seems to me, based on what you're saying too, and again, I, it, you know, you're one person whose experience is like yours and you obviously have your friends and family that you know very intimately their experiences too, but advocacy and policy change seem to be the ways that we're going to really fix this. Absolutely. Um, and that's a whole huge can of worms and, and I think what it... it in the U.S. where there's such a patchwork of laws, depending on where you live, that can be troublesome as well. Um, but the healthcare system itself is sort of built to ease suffering. It's built to ease pain. And um, this is one of, one of the doctors who, I, who I've spoken with, who, there's an episode with him, um, Dr. Gregory Snyder, 
he talks a lot about how important it is for current and future doctors to really understand the whole system and to not just allow their roles to be specifically only provider patient because there is an entire insurance industry that plays into how patients get care and there's an entire cultural system that you know plays into how patients get care um, and how we have to kind of understand that a little bit better and so there, there's hard work and, and um, education that needs to be done on both ends um, and I think then maybe the questions won't specifically be like hey what can a doctor do better yeah and I think I think one of the things that I often think about, it's like when people ask me, like, what can people do better? And, and I think you, you once again hit it on, hit the nail on the head is like, what we can do better is understand where the gaps are, mm -hmm. right? And then be willing to be educated and be willing to have these conversations, right? Like, you don't have, we, we know what we know and we often feel comfortable being, going to school and learning what they're teaching us which is great right but we yeah. know that that isn't perfect so who are the people that aren't being served um once i find out about them how can i as a provider do a better job at having these conversations like you're someone who's going to go into your medical career like being aware that you don't know everything right and there's a there are plenty of populations that you will be underserving because it's just you impossible. Don't know, you don't know. Like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. But the willingness to be open-minded and learn from your patients and learn with your patients and, and have these conversations and put this information out there. Like, here, there's a group of people that we're not talking about that are accessing healthcare or not accessing healthcare. Whenever I can, I'm talking about my experiences, not talking for them. Sure. Um, because I'm no longer undocumented and I haven't been for five years. Um, my life has been very different and you know there's a lot of privilege that I have today that my undocumented friends don't have um, so I'm not talking for them but I am trying to make sure that like I'm also not like well it's not my place I'm just not gonna do anything about it yeah yeah so. this this will be my last question unless you want to talk about anything else specifically and we can definitely kind of keep going but it's such a huge overarching question and it's so broad that you truly can take it in whatever way that you want but um, you know, like, is there a hope for the future? And, and I know when we talked, or what you wrote was, you know, the hope is that undocumented people don't have to have healthcare, don't have to go to the doctors, but obviously we all will have to. I think what I meant to say was like, the hope is that there won't be undocumented people. Gotcha. Like people's okay. statuses will be adjusted. Right. So that Understood. we don't have to worry about yeah. that. When I read that, I was like, that's a pretty big hope. He's got a lot of hope yeah. in him. Yeah, no, I don't, I mean, it would be great if we just, you know, became X-Men or like some sort of mutants <laughs> that just didn't need healthcare, you know, and healed on our own, but I don't, I think that's a little far. <laughs> yeah. No, so I think, I think what I meant to say, I know what I meant to say was that hopefully there won't be undocumented people, right? Like, yeah. and people will be able to access um, healthcare as a, a person who lives in a country, right? And right. I think what I mean by that is like, I think there are always going to be undocumented people. Like, I think of the context of Canada, for example. Um, Canada's healthcare system is pretty fucking great, and there are plenty of undocumented people who still live in Canada who are accessing healthcare. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're getting the care that they need. I'm not exactly sure what, how they're doing it, but, like, they go to the doctors. You know, yeah. they're not living, like, hidden in shadows, um, waiting for, you know, for something to get completely out of control 
to then go to an emergency room. Yeah. Like, you know, so there's less of a shame there. So, like, if we're going to have undocumented people, my hope would be that, like, there isn't so much stigma, which, yeah. I mean, this is way down the road, right? Like, for, for sure. that change, you know? Uh, like, there's still racism, right? Like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, but I think the more realistic thing is that, like, we, we will fight we as so who better to fight for changes in policy than the people who work in the system like mm-hmm. i just don't know yeah you know and yes like i'm sorry for putting more work on doctors and nurses like this is the place where i think doctors and nurses um can do more is like the system isn't set up for providers to then continue to practice cultural competency right. they learn it in an hour and then they leave that hour they're lucky enough if they get 20 minutes to eat their lunch and now they have another 20 patients to sin, yeah. see 20 minutes one after the other yeah. until they're brain dead and they have to go home, right? Yeah. So and when is the next cultural competency training? If you're lucky a year from now, yeah. you get another hour, yeah. right? So like these conversations aren't like happening constantly, not within like I'm sure the administration group is having these conversations, but are they actually providing a space where providers can like vent their frustrations and get feedback and give feedback to one another and like brainstorm these cases right like yeah i don't know that that's happening you know i don't know that that's happening um and that is not something that providers and nurses can change that's yeah something that needs to yeah. come from up above like the system needs to be set up for them to be able to do this right, right. um and you know, I'm, I'm sorry that this sort of took a turn to like, No, I love this. I love this. Queerness, but it, like I can't speak to anything without talking about my intersecting identities, right? right? Which I am a gay man of color. I'm a gay Latino man, gay Brazilian man who lived here undocumented, you know? And so everything affects me in multiple ways, you yeah. know? And, and, and so I'm constantly talking about sort of that, that intersectional perspective, I guess. Um, But yeah, it's like we can't like we need to have these conversations with undocumented people. We need to learn from our provide, from our patients. Um, we need to advocate for systems that allow us to learn from our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be open-minded um, and willing to be challenged. We need to understand as providers that what is taught to us, you know, the interventions that I learned mm-hmm. as a provider, um, a direct service provider, to um, to work out of weren't actually built for the population that I'm working right. with today. Right. And so I need to understand that it's not going to work exactly the same. It's not going to work the way that they want me, that the, the funders want it to work. Yeah. Um, so we need to adapt. Um, I need to make sure that I'm working with, as a grant writer, as the folks writing asking for the for the money for the funding i need to make sure that i'm working with the population that i'm willing to, that i'm wanting to serve as well as the people on the ground doing the direct services to make sure that the services that i'm advocating for are actually going to reflect the needs of the population like and this applies to every sure oppressed group yeah um, you know undocumented whatever and oftentimes it applies to them at the same time because people don't exist in silos like, right we, everything overlaps yeah, you know like 
I'm a gay brown man who lived here undocumented. Like, yeah. you know, my life is not impacted. Like, nothing ever hits me as just a gay man, you yeah. know? Like, yeah, yeah, of course. It comes at me from every direction. It, it hits me in different ways because of intersections, um, intersecting identities. And so, yeah, and so I think, you know, one of the questions that we didn't get to, and I think I'm, I want to talk a little bit about, Please. is the question of, like, the coming out process yeah. for undocumented people to yeah. their providers. I don't think that that's a thing. I don't think people want to disclose that. People don't want to talk about it. I mean, I would willingly, something that's very frowned upon in the way that we do, that we provide services in the U.S., is to, like, talk about your experience. But how the fuck do I expect someone who's been hiding their entire lives because they've been told that their right. existence here is illegal, illegal, like they're criminals, mm-hmm. um, how do I expect them to open up to me if I don't provide them a sense of safety? So like I oftentimes, if I even ha- like, it's like we know each other. Like I could, I could spot a gay from miles away. Sure. I could spot an undocumented person from miles away. Like hmm. I... Within five seconds of talking to someone, there are like contextual clues that come up yeah. that I'm like, okay, I think I understand what's going on here, and I think I know why you're who you are, and you're talking the way you are. Like, they're just they're likely there are um, similarities that just sort of speak to me in a sort of subconscious level because of, of things course. I've experienced. Um, and so, when someone would come into me for testing, I would immediately, if I picked up on it, I would immediately say, oh yeah, like, you know, I find a way to like plug in there. I grew yeah. up here undocumented. You know, I lived here for 12 years undocumented. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, I'm willing to say that eight out of 10 times I would say that to people, they would eventually, like maybe not the first time that we met, but eventually right. come up to me, come out to me as undocumented, right? But like, these are things that you have to keep providing the the space you have to keep you know and you don't like i don't know i don't know but i think it's as simple as like having you know like little signs that say you know undocumented folks are welcome here yeah folks are welcome here like you know and it's not going to work on the first the first sign is not going to make someone who's undocumented feel immediately safe you have to do more work than that but that's um you yeah what i'm hearing from you is and and again i'm kind of putting words in your mouth but like healthcare administrators have to provide a framework and has to be an infrastructure around this stuff providers direct service providers really need to provide a a a, the i I hate that the word safe space has become so like weaponized (laughs) but it truly is like there has to be a space where undocumented people, whether it's the first time, the second time, the third time, or an undocumented queer person or an undocumented XYZ person can say, here's what I'm experiencing, because they do have effects on each other, uh, on healthcare. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in, the, in sort of that process of, I think one of your questions that we didn't address was like, oh, actually, well, it was like, is there a process of coming out, right? So there is, but if you think about the the intersecting identity of queer and undocumented, like, or trans and undocumented, or queer and trans and undocumented, there there are various coming out processes. There were not processes, but there are various coming out experiences. Um, And oftentimes what that means is I also got pretty lucky that like my family is very loving and welcoming and it took a while and I had to, you know, going back to our previous conversation, yeah. like I had to allow my parents to process how their lives would be impact, sure. impacted um, and how their lives would change. But eventually, you know, I got 
I was very lucky and I'm my I have a younger brother and my brother is just the most incredible human being alive and literally just decided that without I mean we both grew up in the same house we both were fed the same message about what it is to be queer right and I came out and here he was like literally just taking the the brunt of the the whatever was coming at me like he he actually told my parents that they weren't allowed to ask me any questions about it like they had to go through him so like what a sweetheart yeah he's incredible so I had I had it pretty lucky but like I know plenty of people and there's plenty of research to show that a huge number of undocumented people are undocumented queer youth because they are escaping yeah like unsafe home lives right so like you're coming out as someone who's queer to your parents if you're undocumented and you're leaving now because your parents don't welcome you or if you're coming out as trans or coming out as queer and trans and you're you're no longer welcome in your house and you're undocumented like what do you do yeah you know like where do you go and i don't think that the, the healthcare system is the place that's going to solve this issue is the system that's going right. to solve this issue but i think like i really valued the conversations i had with my doctor um you know and and I think oftentimes when I was, oftentimes when it got really hard um, being queer, um, and at this point I think I wasn't already, I was already documented, I know I was already documented, but I think I still felt very much undocumented, like Mm. I didn't really necessarily know the system as well as I do today, like I grew up in a bubble and it wasn't until about five years ago that I stepped out of that bubble, and then I was like, oh, this is the US, okay, I didn't know that this is, like existed outside of where I grew up in, right, Um, but having that like reaffirming experience with my providers and being able to say you know this is the way I grew up and um, I was lucky enough that I went to a queer um, focus health center an LGBTQ focus health center so I wasn't super worried about my um, queer identity but I was still you know it was a slow coming out process about my having grown up undocumented identity and having my provider be reassuring of that and, and providing a safe space for me like was important right because as we talked about behavior change takes a while you know yes i'd been documented for two three years but now i was navigating a healthcare system that i still didn't understand yeah um so this person was sort of teaching me and guiding me and like i i had a pretty lucky experience and you know i remember when my provider left the health center that i went to um, I actually took the time to write her an email about like mm. how impactful she was in my life you know like I had she not been the person that she was and had I not had the experiences that I had like I would never have gone into that type of work like yeah. you know I, not necessarily that I'm going into the medical field right. like I want to like my career path has now been shaped by my experiences with my doctor actually like I want to eventually like come back and, and work in the administrative team in the executive team of, of a health clinic, a community health center, because I know how important they are. And I, you've hinted this to this earlier, like the they're oftentimes sort of the entry point for people, yeah. right? Like yeah. to access healthcare. And so that's what I want to do today. But that wouldn't have I don't think that would have happened if it hadn't been for my really incredible experience with my providers. Yeah. So 
you know, and she didn't do much other than listen oftentimes. You yeah. Know, and let me ramble. I rambled a lot. I still do. Um, but it was <laughs> ten times worse. I do too. Um, yeah.